Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. So you're going to be completely in charge of Ordinary Life this coming Sunday. And I'm interested in talking about that and what you're going to do. And neither you nor I had any idea that when this date was in place, um, that um, we would have this cataclysmic tectonic thing that happened yesterday uh, in the resolution of the trial of, of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. And uh, so there's no way that we can't talk about that today in this right. podcast. And I'm assuming that you will be addressing this Sunday. Um, you know, it's interesting because in um, texting and communicating with the two people that will be with me, one is Lenicia Rouse Tinsley, who is just a brilliant, beautiful artist. Um, and painter, and the others, Josh Hudley, my beloved, <laughs> um, and we'll be engaging in a conversation about superheroes and creativity. How okay. can we reimagine what needs to happen in the world through those two lenses? Um, mm-hmm. And we've all kind of felt some hesitancy about any public grieving or processing through this. Because I think um, there's a sense of protection of spirit that we all feel. Um, And I can say that that may be more alive for Josh and possibly for Lanicia than it is for me. I feel it as a mother. Um, I don't know how much we'll process that on Sunday. But but I I will say that it's interesting to me how creativity has played a role in Mm -hmm in this movement over the last year, the the public art we've seen, the public deconstruction of um, the Confederate statue in Richmond, Virginia comes to mind, Um, the murals that have gone up in our own city, um, honoring the lives of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery specifically. George Floyd was born, or not born, but raised in Third Ward. So he has a Houston tie, you know, so, So artists have really played a part in processing, publicizing, and moving something forward over this last year and really in all of history. But anyway, so a roundabout way of saying, I I don't know how much we'll process this. We may touch it. Um, But today with you, I'm I'm more than happy to process it because I think it it needs talking about, you know? So um, one of the ways that I I learn things is through uh, Twitter. I don't (laughs) I don't follow many people on Twitter. I follow Ezra Klein. I follow a guy named John Pavlovich. Mm -hmm. John Pavlovich is a man who is somewhat like Shane Claiborne. He is an evangelical Christian with a intense social consciousness. Mm-hmm. And um, this morning he posted a, on his Twitter feed, 
something that actually came from Jake Trapper, you know, the newscaster, Jake mm -hmm. Trapper, I think mm -hmm. he's on CNN, MSNBC. I don't know what. I can't remember. Yeah. I don't know what he's on. But, and, and I, I can or cannot read this, but what they posted was that immediately after the death of George Floyd on the Minneapolis police website, there was posted a report of the death of George Floyd. He was not mentioned by name, but the news release that they put out for the public about this was that a man was apprehended by the police. He seemed to be medical distress. He was put in handcuffs and ambulance was called. He was taken to the hospital where he died in the hospital. That was the first public presentation of the death of George Floyd. I've got so many responses to that. Yeah. Many of them bring me close to tears, yeah. but I, I, I think that had it not been for the presence of mind of some 17 year old girl who took a video of this that the world got to see the official report of the death of George Floyd would have been that he died in the hospital. And the only person who would have been willing to know differently would be dead. Yes. And I, you know, it's interesting um, as, as the verdict was read yesterday and I listened to it live, um, I first thought of this young woman who did the recording. I thought of how complicated the feelings must be for her. Um, to, to, she bore witness for a world. I mean, protests erupted around the world around this. And she mm -hmm. bore witness to that. She also had with her a younger sibling. So that, so on the one hand you go, thank God. But on the other hand, I felt such deep sorrow for the trauma of watching that event. And that that lives in her, it lives in all of us in mm -hmm. different ways, but it lives in her too. To make the decision, I'm going to put this out there because it's the right thing to do. I just really, I was just really thinking about her yesterday and I don't know. Well, it was, and you know, it was not the only video taken and uh, there were others, thank God, because we got different perspectives on what happened. And I'm sure that those, uh, as, the, as the closing prosecuting attorney said in the closing remarks to the jury, just trust your eyes. Yeah. And um, what our eyes see uh, are so contrary to what we are so frequently told. Mm -hmm. And and I, I'm thinking about not just by the police, but by people in places of power and authority. Um, thinking about right now, what bubbles up is the pedophile scandal in the mm -hmm. in the Roman Catholic Church mm -hmm. and how religious people lied to cover that up and yeah. and we we are creating a society where um we don't know what to believe i mean yeah. people we don't the truth is hard to come by and so i want to say that i think one of the core spiritual 
principles and processes that we have to put in place, especially if we claim to be spiritual teachers, is we have to question everything. Yeah. Well, in, in, in on the other end of questioning everything is a return to trusting our instincts, trusting what is, right? So we question mm-hmm. everything because I think that this is the crazy making cycle, right? I, I saw what I saw. I believe what I saw, but not a day later, someone is trying to convince me that I didn't see what I saw. And so there, there's this there's this really elaborate spinning of tails to discount what is, to discount what we witness. And I think that that happens all the time. You know, it's, it's um, I think about um, the way sometimes kids report stories, what happened, right? Um, well, it happened this way and how often parents will say, no, it didn't. It didn't happen that way. So the kid has this feeling of what I experienced isn't true. And I wonder if perhaps a different way, and sometimes it is fabricated because kids have really interesting and beautiful lenses on the world. They're seeing multiple realities at once and not able to really consciously make logical sense out of all of them. And um, when we say it didn't happen the way that you said, we immediately dismiss their internal voice. We immediately dismiss their knowing. And I just wonder if a different way to explore that is, um, tell me more, tell me more. Can I tell you what I saw? You know, and, and so then we're in dialogue and then we're, we're finding space, we're finding room for breath. And I, I know that's not related to this particular moment, but we start to dismiss what we know at a very early age. So you, um, you and I passed texts back and forth yesterday, um, and and I would not have known this had it not been for you. But almost an hour, didn't you say an hour after the verdict? Within an hour, yeah. There was another death by a police person shooting a young girl. Yeah, a young black girl, fifteen. And the story that came out, and I have not checked updates today, is that she called for help because she was feeling threatened. And the police came. She had a knife in her hand to wield off the threat. And she's the, she got shot. Why? She had a knife. And somehow, you know, there's nothing in me that can justify that holding a knife merits being shot. You know, what, what happens so often is, um, you know, so let, let's reduce this down to why George Floyd died. A whole lot of systemic reasons. I read an incredible article in the Washington Post today about um, his great-great-grandfather having received um, uh, 400 acres as, an, as part of reconstruction and then that, that land being stolen from him from white repossessors of land. So his, his family line is part of the American story of uh, the racial, racial story of America. This lifetime of struggling with generational poverty, um, not being able to get up out of that. So there's a whole context. When it comes down to it, 
George Floyd's life was worth less than $20 because that's what his death was about. Mm. And that's disgusting, mm-hmm. you know? So we think about that and we think about how we, we so quickly turned to, well, what, what did he do? What did he do to deserve this? What did this little girl do to deserve this? And we begin to believe the lie that someone deserves to be killed because of something that they did instead of looking at the reaction of those in power to even consider that killing them is necessary. And so we, we focus on the, the victim a lot more than we focus on the system because the system is much harder to take on. You know, um, one of the things that uh, I have talked about and I think you agree with is that, you know, we're in the grips of some really powerful, destructive shadows. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the belief in redemptive violence. Mm-hmm. And um, I heard yesterday before the verdict was passed, I was in conversation with the clergy staff at St. Paul's because they were in the process of trying to draft a statement about what would be said when the verdict was released. We, we had no idea. I heard one person quoted on the news, um, a 99, 98-year-old Black woman who said she was relieved to see this outcome, which had the outcome that should have been, but she knew it might not be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we all feared, that we all saw with our own eyes what happened. And yet there was the fear that, okay, this will go just like so many cases in the past have been, that a policeman is seen committing murder and pronounced innocent mm-hmm. or extenuating circumstances or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, Art, what I what I was going to say is in the conversation I was in yesterday, one of my colleagues said that there are not enough votes in the Senate in the state of Texas to carry the current what's called constitutional carry law that has been passed passed by the Texas House. But if it were to pass, a law would be passed that it would be permissible for anyone to openly carry a weapon anywhere without a license, without a permit, without any training. Mm -hmm. That's insane. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me, and I I wanted to get, get the quote correct for this podcast, of something that Marianne Robinson, in talking about our enthrallment, our addiction, our love affair as a country with weapons. Marianne Robinson said, this quote is a recipe for a completely deranged society, one where we should all go around capable of a lethal act at any moment. Mm. And that's what you see frequently carried out by police in these situations. They have the power to commit a lethal act and they do it. Yeah. And this, that abuse of power is what, you know, what we've seen played out for, for so, so long. And I, I think that I'm going to 
reflect back to an author I was talking about on Sunday, Resma Minikim, who's a psychologist, trauma therapist. Um, uh, and he talks about how quickly we go into that sort of bracing mode of, oh, I don't want to deal with that. And he call his call to sort of, an, and his thought is that largely white folks become uncomfortable embraced around conversations of power where race is concerned. And his sort of first move is to like settle into that brace, connect with it. What is it that we're resisting seeing? And I, I think that that's exactly where you've been trying to sort of extend that space between the no longer and the not yet, can we extend this pause long enough to notice what's happening and then start to, as um, Neil Douglas Klotz says, untangle the knots that bind us, you know? And I, I'd like to read something. Ibram Kendi is an author who wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, among others. And he he's the director for the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. He is a beautiful mind. But I'd like to read what he wrote because I, I want to also call attention to what incredible energy it took to get us from that police statement that you summarized from the Minneapolis police to yesterday's verdict. It took the movement of millions when what should have been common sense we saw it with our eyes, it happened, mm -hmm. right? So he writes, on Tuesday, April 20th, 2021, a jury found former Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, guilty of three charges related to the murder of George Floyd. All those who strive for an anti-racist society felt a rare moment of relief. This verdict does not bring George Floyd back, but it is one important instance when the courts held an officer accountable for the theft of black life. We are especially grateful that this verdict spares George Floyd's family yet more grief. Yet the immense effort it took, including a historic level of protest from millions of people in 2020, to secure a conv conviction in a single case points to larger systemic issues within policing. This case highlights the urgent need for change, not simply at the level of personnel, but at the level of policy. Anti-racist action in policing requires completely reimagining public safety on a nationwide scale. I was talking to Josh about that, this kind of reimagining, and there's now a probe going into the Minneapolis Police Department about measures used. And that's kind of like, I'm going to make a weird analogy, but it's kind of like the Major League Baseball saying, well, we're going to make a probe into the Astros about cheating when in fact it was happening around the league. That's not me trying to defend the Astros. <laughs> it's just me saying <laughs> that, that that was just, that's reality. There were so many people mm -hmm. who said, oh yeah, this happens all over the league. So you look into one police department to try and sort of address the whole system, but nothing can change if Congress doesn't get behind it, you know? And, and nothing can change if we don't say we, that, that, that the system needs to push that forward. And I think that, that, that the feeling I have had is like relief without solace. It's like a tiny exhale and then followed 
by a sharp intake of breath when you learn not moments later that a 15 year old girl was shot. You know, so mm-hmm. you, you have a tiny exhale and then another brace for more pain. Um, and I still said this to you, don't know what to tell my children about whether the world is safe for them. I don't think it is. Yeah. I mean, there, there is built in, uh, I mean, you know, I'm, 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 I'm grateful for the verdict yesterday. I, I don't celebrate it because I think that, you know, and I know that we still have built into our society a profound um, structure mm-hmm. of, of racism that is not going to go away overnight. I mean, right. we've got a ton of work to do. Mm-hmm. Um, if for and it, and it seems to me, Holly, that if just taking the Texas House bill that has passed the House and it's going to the Senate on this constitutional carry thing, it seems like we're going in the opposite direction as a country. Yeah. Um, not in the direction that makes me feel safe. I don't feel safe. If I go into a store and somebody's carrying a weapon, I'm going to turn around and go leave. So that the rational among us become hermits, right? Because we're like terrified to go out into that space. And I don't think that's the answer either, but it is, um, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I'm just dizzy. I'm dizzy with what to trust. Um, well, I don't mean to put you on the spot, mm, but I'm okay. going to put you on the spot. What are you, what are you going to tell your boys? What are you telling them? Yeah. Um, I'd like to answer that in two ways. Um, we talked to them last night. We, cause we, we, you know, just under a year ago, we talked to them about the day that George Floyd was murdered. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what that went like. Each of our boys had a different response. Um, but what, what ended that conversation telling them about the murder of George Floyd and, and how it happened, our kids just reached for us. They, they reached for our hands. We sat at the table, it's very clear in my mind, with just a pile of hands and just silence. Mm-hmm. So yesterday, dinner table again, we told them, well, we'd like to tell you about the closing of the trial of Derek Chauvin and the killing of George Floyd. And he was found guilty. Oh, they haven't been watching it or keeping up with it. Um, No, no, I think that's, no. I mean, they, they, they do, they get this news report on for via school called CNN 10. So they get a sort of briefing. It's 10 minutes of CNN for kids. Um, and we talked to them about it, but I also haven't been watching it live. I feel like I've read the recaps and I'm processing it as I go. But um, but we told them what the verdict was and, and we had a conversation around, you know, there's still so much work to do. This is a, a small moment of relief, but it doesn't mean the problem is solved. And they have a lot of questions. You know, what my youngest asked, well, has a, um, has a black police officer ever shot a white person and been taken to jail? 
And the answer to that is yes. And then he asked, well, have any other white police officers who've shot a white person been taken to jail? And the answer to that is not very often. And so for them, this, this doesn't make sense. Why, right. why can someone get away with this? Second part of that answer is um, all of my kids like to draw. Uh, I have really not done much to instill that, but they all draw. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. my, my middle son has a notebook by his bed and he went up to, to, to his room a little early last night and I came in and he was drawing a picture of a boy with his hands in his pockets and on the shirt read, I love black lives. And I said, wow, what, what's that about? And he was like, I just want people to know that we need to love black lives. And part of the detail of this picture was there was a little table off to the side with a teeny tiny book on it. And I said, what's that book? And he said, it's called How to Stop the Spread. And the self-portrait of himself, he's wearing a mask. That's my 10-year-old son's drawing. Many, many 10-year-olds around the world are drawing pictures of their favorite cartoon characters or superheroes or whatever. My kid is drawing a picture of a boy in a pandemic reading a book about how to stop the spread while wearing a I Love Black Lives t-shirt. Today, he sat down and drew another picture of another boy. I taught him yesterday how to draw curly hair. So his figures now have curly hair. Mm. And he, this boy has a speech bubble coming out saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Wow. My 10 year old son is processing, thank God. You know, thank God he can sort of put this down in this way. And so that's about how they're processing it, right? Well, my youngest son drew a picture of all the black superheroes mm-hmm. he could think about. His picture is like three people. It's Miles Morales, who's a Spider-Man character. It's the Black Panther. Um, and it's this new Captain America long story. I won't go into it, but he was trying to imagine all the black superheroes mm-hmm. he could think of. They're trying to find their place yeah. in the world. And the world is not giving them a whole lot of certainty about that. You know, I've seen statistics of um, how many people are shot and killed by police. And I can't quote them, but the number is astronomically high. It just incredible and then when you add to that how many people die of gun deaths in this country as i read in class on sunday more uh in the last really relatively short period of time than all the people in all the wars the united states has ever fought going back to the revolutionary war it is insane Mm -hmm. We live in a culture of violence. And, uh, you know, my, my question is that um, I, I want to know what, how I can contribute or continue to contribute to creating a place where life has more value than death. Mm. 
And we don't live in that kind of world. I'm sad to say we don't. Yeah. Um, so though I'm, I'm, I'm relieved about the verdict, it also uncovers just how lost we are. Yeah, because this is one among way too many yeah. that went the right way, yep. right? Um, I watched also as the verdict was being read, they zoomed in, the, I would think I was watching it through PBS NewsHour and they zoomed in on Derek Chauvin's face with a mask on and his eyes were just wild. He was darting back and forth between the judge and the jury and the judge and the jury and the judge and the jury. Um, and I felt something then too, you know, I think what is it in a person that disconnects us so deeply from ourselves that we can kill another? That is not what an integrated person does. That's not what an integrated society promotes, you know, and this deep work of integrating the self, integrating the shadow in the light is just, we've got so far to go. Mm -hmm. I have um, worked with men who have killed other men and, um, mm -hmm. Some of them uh, were killed, but they killed because they were they were paid to, told to, ordered to, and they did it as part of military training. Military, they were combatants in the military. And I have heard men tell horror stories about things that I shouldn't even, I wish I didn't know about. Men who thought they were killing enemy and bombed a school with kids. And I've seen what that's done to these men who've come back from combat with that on their conscience, in their hearts, on their hands, and it destroys them. They, they have to get involved in a lot of remedial work to be able to be back in society. And um, I've also worked with a few men who committed murder. Uh, and I can clearly say without any qualm that these guys were sociopaths. And I fear that our society is constructed in such a way that people are attracted to certain professions like law enforcement because they are granted permission to unleash their aggressive impulses um, with impunity. That's not every police officer, mm -hmm. but it's enough. And it's enough to, mm -hmm. to make me fearful. And I think if I were a person yeah. of color, I would be terrified. You know? Yeah. I was, um, my son brought up last night when we were talking at the dinner table about this. Um, he said, mommy, um, didn't you call daddy inside one night when there was a police officer outside? And it kind of, I was like, whoa, yeah. You know, so there was, um, there's uh, many neighborhoods, especially wealthy to 
middle to upper class neighborhoods have uh, constable patrols, right? And it's it's a protective measure for the neighborhood. You pay a certain amount toward the police or the constable and they patrol your neighborhood and you have little signs in your yard that say, I support the constable patrol. Um, and one night I saw a slow moving police officer, police car driving by the houses, shining the, his light in all the yards. I don't know what was being looked for. Not seconds before I saw that car, Josh had been outside um, turning off like the pool equipment. My first response was not terror or fear at, wow, what is that policeman looking for? But where the hell is my husband? I get inside. Mm. It shouldn't be. Yeah. And yet here we are. <laughs> we have, a, yeah, we, we have, we have a lot of lamenting to do and becoming aware. Um, I think it would, it would really be a benefit to our whole society if everybody was forced to learn about spiral mm -hmm. dynamics, to learn about how developmental processes are formed and how certain people are attracted to certain mm -hmm. professions, uh, just to be aware mm -hmm. of that. Um, that. That can go a long way toward, I think, bringing about change, awareness, just being yeah. aware, just yeah. wake, wake up, you know, roll out of bed yeah. and wake up. Yeah. And um, yeah. we're asleep. We're, we're seduced and drugged and addicted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think this is just a, a huge process of creative reimagining from the top down and from the bottom up, you know, well, we, I said this, I think we talked about this once before. It's like, this is on every level. It's on curriculum level, what kids are learning in schools, how we talk to them about becoming and developing, how we hold the highest levels of government and law enforcement accountable and everyone in between. I mean, it, it's, it's, it is, it's mm -hmm. at every level and that can make the, make the process feel so overwhelming. But that's kind of the space again that I feel like we need to stretch out is just sitting in the discomfort of what is and choosing the space where we can fit in and contribute. So in two weeks when we are back teaching, we get a chance to look at this line in the Lord's Prayer that says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, it's a great line. It's not how it was originally intended, but we can get to that when we talk about it on Sunday. But um, we, we, we do need to be led in a different direction. And that leadership has got to come from inside. And there's yeah. no exterior God power out there who's going to do it for us. We have to grow up, assume responsibility, personal responsibility for what we are creating yeah and um it's we've got a lot of work to do we do i'm grateful that i'm able to do some of this work with you uh i really am grateful for all the years i've known you and have been really guided by your teaching and we need more Bill Curleys in the world. <laughs> mm, well, thanks. 
We also yeah. need more pacifists. Yeah, we do. Agreed. Thank you for walking through this today and well, you know, I, 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 I don't want to leave this podcast or myself or you with any sense of uh, the, this being a downer, but um, I think that the result of yesterday has, has given me such mixed emotions, and most of them are sad. Most yeah. of them are feelings of Yes, like you said, it's a, it's a, it's a sigh of relief, and then another big intake of, oh God, another fifteen year old girl shot, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot yeah. that we don't know about. You use the word cataclysmic. Maybe it's apocalyptic, and that it's revealing so yeah. much more. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's revealing well, how much we need to lament and how far we have to go. Yes. One of my favorite bands, U2, has a song called 40, and it's um, about Psalm 40, which is a psalm of lament. Mm. And it, I'll just end like this. It goes, how long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? How long, how long? We're still singing it. Yeah. I'm going to get that song. <laughs> All right. See you soon. Okay. Bye. <laughs>